Let's take another look at those words we just finished singing. I will feed the poor and hungry. I will stand up for the truth. I will take my cross and follow to the corners of the earth. And I ask that you so fill me with your peace, your power, your breath, that I never love my life so much to shrink from facing death. Facing death. I wonder how many of us here will be martyred for following Jesus. Maybe someone will, but it's not really very likely. So we can sing those final lines without too much trouble. We know that we probably won't face physical death for following Jesus. But what about a different kind of death? What if, instead of being faced with martyrdom, we faced death to our human ambitions? Death to human honor and position? What if we face death to our own comfort in order to serve others? Would we shrink from that kind of death? Well, I have shrunk from it many, many times. And so I need to pay attention to our passage this evening. I would guess that we all do. We're going to turn to Mark chapter 10, and we're going to look at verses 32 to 52. If you're using the church Bible, that's page 1015, and in the large print, 1575. Mark 10, verse 32. They were on their way up to Jerusalem, with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. 
Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they called to the blind man, Cheer up on your feet. He's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately, he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. This is God's word. And our passage begins by showing us a Jesus who is determined to die. In recent weeks, Steve has reminded us that Mark's gospel, the second half of it, is showing us what kind of Messiah Jesus is. In chapter 8, immediately after Peter announced that Jesus was the Messiah, Jesus began explaining that he was going to suffer and die. Then in chapter 9, he explained it again. And now here, he does it for the third time. And notice, Jesus is not just talking about this. Verse 32 says, They were on their way up to Jerusalem, with Jesus leading the way. He's told his disciples he's going to die there, and here he is striding towards death. So it's no wonder Mark tells us the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Jesus is so purposeful. He's so determined, and it frightens them. They may be wondering, we've attached ourselves to this guy. What's this going to mean for us? And Jesus then talks about his death in more detail than he has previously. Verse 33, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Jesus was talking there to the twelve. And as we read that, it seems almost impossible that immediately after Jesus has finished those words, two of the twelve should do what we read next. 
In verse 35, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. The passage began telling us about Jesus who is determined to die. Now we're told about James and John who are determined to claim places of honor. And we might wonder, have James and John missed what Jesus just said? Did they not hear that he was going to be mocked, spit on, flogged, and killed? No, they were there. They heard all that. But they've latched on to the very last part, the bit about Jesus rising again. It's a bit like one of those far side cartoons. The first part has the owner talking to his dog. He says, now Fido, I'm just going to sit down and eat my dinner and then we'll go for a walk. Then the rest of the cartoon tells us what the dog actually hears. Blah, blah, Fido. Blah, 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 walk. That's what James and John are like. They're thinking to themselves, Jesus said he's going to rise. That means he's going to come into his kingdom. That means there's going to be a banquet. We better get our seats sorted out before anyone else does. The gospel show us that within his close circle of 12 disciples, Jesus poured the most into his inner circle of three, Peter, James, and John. But notice what's happening here. Notice what human ambition does to us. Because James and John want honor for themselves, and because there can only be two seats beside the king, they're willing to see Peter left out. That's what human ambition does. Not only are James and John ignoring the suffering of their savior, they're also ready to betray their friend Peter. And notice how Jesus reacts to them. He doesn't say, you will never join me in glory. He says, let me tell you about the way to glory. You have to drink a cup and be baptized with a baptism. What is Jesus talking about? On the face of it, it doesn't sound too bad. Well, in the Old Testament, drinking a cup was used as a picture of receiving God's judgment. So, for example, here is Psalm 75. In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out, and all the wicked of the earth will drink it down to its very dregs. And here's the prophet Jeremiah. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. When they drink it, they will stagger and go mad because of the sword I will send among them. That's the background to Jesus' words here. He's saying on the cross, I'm going to drink the cup of God's judgment. I'm going to drain it to the dregs. 
so that others don't have to. What about the baptism? That's another way of saying the same thing. In baptism, a man or woman is plunged into water. Jesus says, I'm going to be plunged into God's wrath so others don't have to be. Then he says, can you follow me in that, James and John? They're very self-confident. They say, we can. And Jesus says to them in verse 39, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. The book of Acts tells us that King Herod put James to death with the sword. And the book of Revelation records the visions John saw as a prisoner in the island of Patmos. So history tells us James and John did drink a bitter cup. They were baptized with a bitter baptism. They suffered. But Jesus' point is your suffering won't earn you the place of honor that you want. Those places are given at my Father's pleasure. God the Father has assigned the places of honor in Christ's kingdom. And those places will go not to those who are seeking honor for themselves, but to those who seek the Father's honor. That's what Jesus is doing. Jesus is going to submit to being mocked, spit on, flogged, and killed. And he's going to do it, yes, for our salvation, but even more than that, for his Father's honor. Because it's the Father's will to save sinners like you and me. And yet sin must be punished. Ultimately, Jesus died for you and me so that his Father could be just by punishing sin and at the same time merciful by saving sinners. And for that service to his Father, Jesus has been exalted to the highest place. Those on his left and right will not be those who want honor for themselves. They will be those who, like Jesus, seek the Father's honor. And then, to all twelve of his disciples, Jesus gives a call. He says, follow me by serving. Verse 41 says, when the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Many preachers have pointed out the reason the other ten are indignant with James and John is because they hadn't thought of it first, asking for the places of honor. They thought James and John had beaten them to it. So Jesus knows all 12 of these men have the same hunger for personal honor. So he calls them together and he says in verse 42, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, 
and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The disciples have the same problem you and I have. We're surrounded by a culture that teaches us to grab honor and position for ourselves. People moan about those in authority, even as they're trying to get authority themselves. We see it over and over again in Africa and Eastern Europe. Some hero of the people rises up and overthrows a dictatorship then he becomes a dictator himself. Here in England, we've seen people high up in the entertainment industry using their position to take advantage of others. Rolf Harris, Jimmy Savile, and on and on. And even when there's no dramatic exploitation involved, give someone a promotion or give them a title and watch how their attitude changes. Not always, but often, they start lording it over others. But Jesus says to his disciples, not so with you. If you want to be great, serve others, including those you have authority over. Now, whether or not Peter got this at the time, he certainly did get it later. Here's what he wrote to church elders in his first letter. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Notice, neither Jesus or Peter deny that some will have authority over others. They don't deny there is a crown of glory ahead of us. But they tell us the way to exercise authority and the way to gain the crown of glory is not to seek personal honor. It's to serve others for the honor of God. The kingdom of God runs by different rules to the kingdoms of this world. In God's kingdom, leadership is service. Who doesn't want the reward of glory in God's presence. We all do. We saw this morning in Romans, that's the inheritance God has promised us. Longing for that inheritance is what keeps us going. But Jesus is saying the way to that glory is not through aiming to be served by others, but by serving others. Sinclair Ferguson says this, the way of the disciple is different from the way of the world. In the kingdom of God, 
True greatness is measured by our service, not by the number of our servants. It is seen not on how high up the ladder we have climbed, but how far down the ladder we are prepared to climb for the sake of others. And Jesus himself has given the ultimate example of that. Verse 45 is one of the key verses in the New Testament for explaining why Jesus died. Yes, he did many great things before the cross. He taught, he healed, he challenged people about their lives, he provided for their needs. But the reason he came was not to do any of those things. It was to give his life as a ransom for many. To buy sinners back from their slavery to sin. Now Jesus is saying this in the context of calling his disciples to service. But we can't skim over this without reminding ourselves that we can't even begin the Christian life until we admit our sin and trust in Jesus' work. His death for us is our only way to forgiveness and salvation. If you're interested in Christianity, the place to start is not with what you can do for God. That's putting the cart before the horse. The place to start is with what God has done for you. Hundreds of years before the New Testament, God promised through the prophet Isaiah that he was going to send a servant. And that servant would save many by pouring out his life unto death. And who at the time would have guessed that servant would turn out to be God's own son? There is no greater example of serving others for God's sake. There's no greater example of climbing down the ladder for others for God's sake. And once you and I have put our trust in Jesus and received God's forgiveness, then we're not called to give our lives as a ransom for others. We can't buy them back from their sin. But we are called to serve rather than seeking to be served. It's such a simple instruction, but we find it so hard to do. And sometimes I think we're better at the big sacrifices than the small ones. What I mean is, most of us here have committed our lives to serving God. The disciples have done that too. In the passage we looked at last week, Peter said to Jesus, we have left everything to follow you. And there is a sense in which we have done that. We might be the only one in our family who's following Christ. Maybe the only one at school or the only one at work. We have made that big commitment like the disciples. And yet so often, like them, don't we struggle with the little daily sacrifices? 
Don't we struggle to serve our family by helping around the house? Noticing the boring jobs that need to be done and then doing them. Don't we struggle to honor our parents when they set boundaries for us? If we're married, maybe we'd never commit adultery. But do we struggle to speak kindly to our spouse? Do we serve our spouse by paying attention to them when they're talking to us? Do we serve others in church by taking an interest in their lives? Even if we don't think their lives are interesting. Do we serve by welcoming by setting up whatever needs setting up and clearing up afterwards. All of those things seem so insignificant. But those are the nuts and bolts of serving others. We love to say with Peter, I have left everything to follow Jesus. But what about doing the dishes for your wife for Jesus? What about not cutting your husband down to size in public for Jesus? What about not rolling your eyes at your parents for Jesus? Does this passage really call us to that sort of stuff? Yes, it does. Right after Jesus mentions his big, world-changing act of service, giving his life as a ransom for many. Right after that, we see Jesus doing some insignificant service. Look at verse 46. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Remember how this passage started. Jesus is leading his followers to Jerusalem. He's walking purposefully like a warrior going out to battle. He's focused on arriving in that city, trampling Satan and his demons, crushing sin by giving his life on the cross. Here's God's Son anointed to heal the rupture between mankind and God. He's only days away from the horror of crucifixion we'd forgive him for being a bit preoccupied, wouldn't we? As he passes through Jericho, the last town before Jerusalem, we wouldn't think less of Jesus if he didn't notice a filthy beggar on the roadside. The beggar could wait, couldn't he? Jesus has more important stuff to worry about. That's what the crowd think. They tell Bartimaeus to shut up. 
But Jesus, who is about to give his life as a ransom for many, stops. And he says to the man, what do you want me to do for you? In terms of world history and in terms of eternity, what does it matter if this one man gets his sight back? Isn't it insignificant? But Jesus does it. And as he does it, he teaches his disciples and us that being a servant is not just about the big acts of service. It's also about the little stuff. The stuff that really doesn't seem to matter. But genuine servants do the stuff that doesn't seem to matter. Genuine servants sit next to the person who's on their own. They care enough to chat and be a friend, even if it's a great struggle for them to do it. It's worth noticing that we're given Bartimaeus' name. Of all the people who are healed in Mark's gospel, Bartimaeus is the only one to be named. And apparently he became well known in the early church. Bartimaeus is here to show us that insignificant service never is insignificant. On the day Jesus passed by, this was just another beggar. So easy to ignore. But Jesus stopped. Jesus served him. The beggar became a disciple. Verse 52 says he followed Jesus. And today, all of us here know his name. The point is, your insignificant service is not insignificant at all. You may never see the results of it. But God will bring results from it. So don't wait for your big, significant moment of service to come along. Serve by doing the small things. Make the small sacrifices day by day. And you'll be following Jesus. We're going to remember him as we sing together the servant king.